I've titled my, the name of my sermon, I Know Who I'm Living For. In this, in this passage, James offers three maxims which help, help ensure you are fulfilling the royal law. Loving God and your neighbor. You must live considering, number one, your eternal destination. That's uh, chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. Number two, you must live considering your sovereign creator. That's verses 15 and 16. And number three, you must live considering your doctrinal knowledge. Let me pray and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning again. We praise your holy name. We pray along with the song. Lord, I know that I come here to preach the word. Father, I pray that I would decrease, that you would increase. I thank you that your word will do as it, as you have promised it will do, and it will not return void. Father, I pray that you would use me in what way you will this morning, in Christ's name, amen. In the 1700s, there lived a Christian merchant named John Thornton. He was once approached for financial assistance by a minister whose family was greatly in need of food. Thornton listened to his story and immediately gave him a draft for 15 pounds. While the grateful minister was still with him, his mail arrived, and Thornton begged him not to go until he should see if there was any news which might interest him. He began to read one of the letters, and after a considerable pause, he said, Here is a letter conveying very bad news indeed. I have lost a very valuable ship, and certainly my loss cannot be less than 20,000 pounds. You must return to me that draft, my dear sir, to prove that I, and to prove that I do not deceive you, read the letter that I've just received. What could the poor minister do? He recalled the condition of his starving and sickly wife and children and anticipated the grievous disappointment of his returning without assistance. With a heavy heart, he handed the draft to Mr. Thornton and began to read the letter as a way of concealing his distressed countenance. He soon perceived the loss was even greater than Thornton had mentioned, and all his hopes died away. In the meantime, Thornton had been writing, and when the letter was returned to him, he said, You see, my sir, my dear sir, how unpleasantly I am uns- or, or that I'm situated. However, there is another piece of paper which I desire will put I, I desire you will put in your pocket. The hopeless minister took it and opening, opening it found a draft for 50 pounds. He looked at Thornton with, uh, uh, just looked at the Thornton incredulity, with incredulity, and Thornton replied, My dear sir, as the Almighty seems to be determined to deprive me of the wealth which he gave me and which he has so good a right to take away, I must be speedy, therefore, to give while it is still in my possession. Beloved, God gives us the ability to make wealth. And sometimes he chooses to give that wealth, And other times he chooses to take away. But we must never forget that it is always for his purposes. As such, we must always remember to use our resources, including our time and our material wealth, for God's purposes and for his glory. Now, we find ourselves in James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Now, I want to do something a little bit different this morning, or today. Normally, I would read the passage and then explain it. But today, I want to give you a review leading up to this passage, uh, a review of of the context before I read the verses. See, I want you to understand the the background of these verses, because I, I think this will help you understand them. I have to admit to you that there's been a certain amount of Dread, if you will, as I approach this section. I've looked over the hill and I've seen this section, so to speak. I've been looking to these verses and I've been struggling to understand James's point. Why is he writing this at this point in the letter? You see, these verses are straightforward enough. 
They're straight. We can preach. I can preach these verses on their own merit. But I want you to understand why he's writing what he is writing. I want to understand the issue. I want you to understand and me to understand the issue that he's addressing. I want us to understand what was going on in the lives of these people that caused James to give them, give them these exhortations. Clearly we could say that James is forbidding them to make plans without accounting for the Lord's will. He also wants them to understand that life is short. And, and could be ended at any time. And he wants them to live according to that. Only the Lord truly knows what you will be doing today, or much less tomorrow. So living as if you have the power to do anything outside of the Lord's will is arrogant. And, and therefore, boasting in your grand plans is the same as boasting in your arrogance. And so then James gives them a principle that knowing what is right and not doing it is sin. And at that point, we could just all go home because I preached the sermon, right? Not really. Not really, because we don't understand exactly what's going on and what's at play here. I believe there's something much deeper going on or at play here. So as we normally do, I want to explore the context to understand why James has written these words and his deeper point. Now, I believe once we understand his point, his, word, his words will have a much deeper significance to us, a much deeper meaning. Now, before I start, I want to ask a favor of you. We need to, we're going to need to put on our scuba gear because we're about to take a deep dive. I want, you to, I want to ask you to stick with me. I, w- I want to ask you to stick with me as we explore the, the context of this letter. I believe that it will be well worth your time. Now, I want to also encourage you that if you're struggling to keep up, I want to encourage you that listening to preaching, uh, Jonathan has been going through it in, in that book, Expository Listening, but I want to encourage you that, that listening to preaching, it's difficult work. It's difficult work. It's hard work. Listening to preaching it means that I have to engage in what's being said. And if you're struggling, I, I would ask that you refrain from casting at stones at me, but casting stones at me. But I, w- I would ask that you take some time and pray about it, and ask the Lord these questions, and ask yourself these questions: Am I fully engaged in the sermon? If if you let your mind drift even for a moment, you might miss a crucial phrase or a point which is the which makes the sermon make sense. Now, I try to, to repeat things. I try to repeat especially important points and even try to say things in different ways. If you notice even the context, I, every Sunday I come and I try to give you a different context so that you can kind of see uh, how it leads into that passage so you kind of get a, 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 a larger view of what's going on. I promise you I'll give you my full effort in preparing the table. I just ask that you give your full effort in receiving it. Another question to ask yourself is, did I come prepared this morning? Did I prepare myself last night? Have I gotten the rest that I need? Have I confessed sin? Is there unconfessed sin in my life that would would harden my heart so that I can't understand and hear hear and understand the Word? Have you worked or have I worked to lessen the distractions in my life? If you're married, are you, are, you, are you on the same page with your spouse? It's important, right? Our prayers would be hindered if we're, if we're not on the same page. But I think even, even receiving the word can be hindered when you're not on the same page. On a, on a more practical note, did I bring a pen and paper to take notes? Am I prepared practically to take notes? Did I, did I use the, the restroom prior to starting? And am I seated in a place that reduces distractions? I mean, those are practical things, but very helpful in terms of, of making sure that you are engaged in the preaching of the Word and make sure that your neighbor around you is also engaged and you're not being distracting to him or her. So let's dive in. As we know, this letter is written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, 
We can be reasonably sure that he is the author for several reasons, but I believe that the echoes of Jesus' words, especially from the Gospel of Matthew and, and really from the Sermon on the Mount, is one of the more conv- convincing of these reasons. We've seen several instances where James has echoed the teaching of Jesus in the Gospels. Probably one of the strongest echoes is what James calls the royal law in James 2.8. You must love your neighbor as yourself. For sure, we, we see and have seen that this comes straight out of Leviticus 19.18. But Jesus himself emphasized this teaching in his own earthly ministry, especially as he interacted with the Jewish elite. Now, that's gonna, there's going to be a parallel here between what Jesus did in interacting with the Jewish elite and what James is doing as he interacts with the church, but also with those who are around associated with the church. As a matter of fact... We see this, this, uh, this teaching seems to be the undercurrent, the royal law, if you will, the undercurrent of James's entire letter. Now, I was telling Angie, my wife, last week that, that there are a few, a few verses in James that, that serve as little windows into the situation that James addresses, giving us great insight into why he's writing this letter. Obviously, he's writing to a group of people who are suffering for the cause of Christ. He wants this group to understand why God sends trials to us so that they could find joy in the midst of those difficulties. That's verses 2 through 4. Again, that's a, that's a window into what's happening here. I think that these, these are what we will call the downtrodden brethren. This is group 1, the downtrodden brethren. They are true Christians who are suffering for the sake or for the cause of Christ. He refers to them in verse 9 of chapter 1 as the brother of humble circumstances. They are also called the first fruits among his creatures in verse 18. That's chapter 1 verse 18. Now we have said then that what we think is is that James is saying that they are the first fruits of the church. And, that's, and James is very concerned with them as such because they are so important to the future of the church. A probable possible subset of this group would be the widows and orphans in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 27. This group is, represented by, is also represented by the poor man who has come into the, their assembly in verse, chapter 2, verse 3 and 6. And most likely, James has them in mind when he speaks of a brother or sister who is without clothing and in need of daily food in chapter 2, verse 16. And we saw last week that he revisits these folks in chapter 4, verse 11, which is right before the, the, the passage that we're in now. That's... <clears throat> It seems as though that, that these people were being slandered and, partial, and partially judged without any protection from the larger church. That's what James is refer, was referring to in chapter 2 when he warned his readers against partiality. He asked them, who are you, then chapter 4, who are you to judge your neighbor in, a, in, in an unrighteous way? And he warns them that when they slander and judge in an unrighteous manner, they are judges of the law and not doers of it. They are, they're priding themselves on being doers of the law, yet because of their actions and slandering and judging unrighteously, they become judges of the law, not doers of it. He tells them that, they're, they're, that there is only one lawgiver and judge, the Lord who is able to save and destroy. Now, putting yourself in His place then is prideful. It's really pride of the highest order. And to, to do so is to put yourself in league with the devil, ultimately. Now, there is a second group. That's the first group. This is the, the downtrodden brethren, group one. These are the ones that are struggling for the sake of Christ. They're the ones that are being judged partially, I believe. Now, there's a group two. This is the, this is the rich ruling class, or rich landowners. They are unbelievers, and they seem to be on the outside, yet they are associated probably associated with the church probably through their business dealings. James addressed these people in James 2. They're the ones who oppress and drag the brethren into court. They're the ones who are judging partially and getting partial judgments against these, the, the brethren. These folks show back up in James 5.1 when James warns them against withholding the pay of their laborers. 
Now, I don't think it's much of a stretch to believe that these rich landowners were withholding the pay from the poor brethren. Uh, These brethren had proclaimed Christ as the Messiah, and therefore they had very little, little recourse in the legal system of the day, which would have been run by the religious leaders. you understand that? They had, they had claimed Christ as the Messiah and basically turned their back on their way of life. And so any recourse that they may have, may have had legally is now gone. Because of their association with Christ, they would have been ostracized by society at large. Therefore, they were an easy target for those who w- were willing to take advantage of them. Does that make sense? We don't have to think too hard to see the same phenomena in our own day. People make some bad financial decisions and put themselves at the mercy of high interest loans which may take a lifetime to pay out. High interest credit cards, check cashing schemes are just two of the ways people can get themselves into great difficulty. And there are even shadier ways to borrow money from predatory lenders. Many times, money is borrowed on, on balloon loans or interest-only loans. This, this, the principal then will come due at a, at a high level of interest. In the post-Civil War South, former slaves became sharecroppers. Sharecropping is a form of agriculture in which the landowner allows the tenant to use the land in return for a share of the crops produced on their portion of the land. Now, sharecropping, in theory, can work well. Where, but the, but in those, it has to be in those situations where the landowner is good and he cares for those in his charge. But it can be disastrous if the landowner is unscrupulous, if he's predatory, especially when there's very le- little legal protection. Miners have faced the same issues. There's a chorus from an old Johnny Cash song that says, uh, you load 16 tons and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. The point of the song is clear, right? The miners would have had to purchase their supplies at the company store and many times they would do so at high interest. And it's an, it was nearly impossible for, possible for them to pay it off, so they owed their soul, that is, to the company store. In these situations, they may have had very little legal recourse uh, to protect themselves from the rich. And many times, the rich become rich because they have a lack of scruples. They're, they're willing to do this. That's what was happening here to James's readers. I believe that the, they were being taken advantage of by these rich landowners who were withholding pay, and they had to pay back interest on loans. can't be for certain, but that's what it seems like is going on. These rich landowners, they, they probably lent money to them at interest, and had, they had come to a, uh, the brethren had come to a point of desperation, and the landowners continued to oppress them, and they took them to court, drug them into court, and they had them under their thumbs, and they wouldn't let them go. And then they were slandering them and, and getting unrighteous judgments against them. And tragically for the brethren, the only way out of this was to renounce Christ before the Sanhedrin, which would have gotten them back into good with the ruling elite and given them access back into society. You see the, you see the issue here? And you see why James is so concerned about these people? He's concerned that that as they go through this suffering, that as they deal with this day-to-day situation, suffering is very real, right? They're dealing with very real issues. And James is concerned that they may denounce Christ. That's why James promises them that Christ, or tells them that Christ, reminds them that Christ has promised them the crown of life for their perseverance. That's chapter 1, verse 12. James, James could not, let me, let me make sure you understand this, James could not promise them a good life here. I've said it a few times, he couldn't give them their best life now. If they followed Christ, they probably would have to suffer for the rest of their lives. And they may even in, in face death, and no doubt some of them had already died at the hands of these vicious people. Now, there's a third group here. A third group. We'll call them group three. I'll call them the fence riders. 
We can't say whether they're believers or unbelievers. We just can't, can't be certain. The only way to know for sure is if they show their true faith by their works. That's really James chapter 2. Remember he, he tells them that faith without works is a dead faith. You can proclaim that you have faith in Christ, but if your works don't match that faith that you proclaim, then it's a dead faith. These are the folks that James warns in James 1.9. He says, but the brother, starting in James 1 9, he says, but the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away, for the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his struggles will fade away. I believe what's going on there is James is warning them against the, 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 the pursuit of riches. He's, a, he's warning this group of people, the, the group that we'll call the fence riders, he's, he's warning them against the, the, the pursuit of riches. Now, the reason I believe that is because I believe that these rich landowners, that they have nothing to do with the church outside of, of oppressing the church. So I think James is warning those in the church that have, have more means or are richer in the church. And he's warning them, this is what's going to happen if you, if you pursue these riches. Now, I believe that these verses, these ver- this ver- chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, are crucial to the passage before us. I want, you to, I, I want you to keep them in mind as we move forward. Just take a moment then and mark them in your notes. Mark them in your notes. Mark them in your mind. We will come back to them. Now, I believe that these folks in group three, the fence riders, are also the ones that James is speaking to throughout this letter. He's trying to turn them from the error of their ways. It seems as though they're showing partiality toward the rich in hopes of remaining in their good graces. Does that make sense? So they're sitting there, and they're they're in good graces with with the rich for whatever reason, and they're wanting to keep that. They're wanting to stay in those good graces. They're wanting to to protect the pleasures that they enjoy. They have one foot in the church and the other on the outside. They're unwilling to put any skin in the game, if you will. He admonishes these people in, in verse 22 to be doers of the word, not merely hearers. You get the point? That he he says in, in chapter one, verse twenty-two, be be doers of the word, not merely hearers. Don't just listen to the word. Don't just barely associate, have one foot in the church and one foot on the outside. Once you're out of church, then you go and you do what you want to do. You go live the way you want to live. He's saying you need to do the word. In, verse, in chapter 1, verse 27, he teaches them that pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained by the world. Again, I think he's speaking to these people. He's saying, you have got to live your life unstained by the world, but you also have to visit orphans and widows in their distress. And the point is, is that if you're, if you're, the point is, is that if you're ignoring them, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're not a doer of the word. And we've already mentioned it, that he warns them that faith without works is a dead faith. He, wants them, he, he warns them also of using worldly wisdom in chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. He even calls them adulteresses in, in chapter 4, verse 4, when he says, don't, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? You see, what, you see why you would call them adulteresses? Because they, they, they have this one foot in the, in the church and one foot in the world, and they're trying to be friends with the world, and, they, and, and, and it's, it's adultery, it's spiritual adultery. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James says also of these people in James five nineteen through 20 My brethren, if anyone among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he turns a sinner from the error of his way, that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. These people were very close to becoming sellouts. And James is very concerned about their eternal destiny. I believe James has these people in view as he writes this passage before us today. Now, with all this as our backdrop, let drop. Let me read these verses to you: James four thirteen through seventeen. James writes, "Come now, you who say today and or tomorrow." 
we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now, I've already told you that James offers three maxims which help will help ensure that you are fulfilling the royal law, loving God and loving your neighbor. You must consider the first point, your eternal destination. That's chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Now, before I go any farther, I want you to know that we will not get past point one today. So you can take a deep breath. You can relax. We won't get past point one today. There will be a part two to this. James writes, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Now as we established, I believe that James is writing to this group three. Now from a human perspective, uh, we've, we've already said that they are on the fence. They've got one foot in the church, one foot on the outside. We, we don't know from a human perspective which way they will fall. No doubt some of them are true Christians. But there can be no doubt that some, some fell away from the faith. Now I think that we ought to take a look at these people for a moment to understand them better in light of this passage. Now what I want to say up front is, is that the, that the, un, the underlying boastful arrogance of the people both in this paragraph and the next one is wealth. Wealth. The making of wealth and the keeping of it. Wealth and the making, making of it and keeping of it is the crux of the issue here. And I hope that you'll see this as we work through this passage. Now, I think that the understanding, or think that understanding the role of wealth in their lives will help us tie these verses to the overall context. In verse 13, James speaks of merchants who have extensive travel plans and desire to make money. The picture that James is consistent with, the picture James draws is consistent with the mercantile society of the first century Hellenistic world. Many Jews were quite active in these types of business enterprises. Large numbers of them had settled throughout cities in the Mediterranean world for these commercial reasons. It's interesting to note the tendency of the Jews to be involved in business. They are very intelligent and industrious, and so they have historically involved themselves in all sorts of trade, including banking. So their involvement in the business world shouldn't come as a surprise to us. Now, as I mentioned earlier, these, these are probably people who are in the church and have identified themselves as Christians. They are Jewish Christians, the first fruits of the church. Now, James chastises these merchants for failing to look at life from a Christian perspective. Let me, let me say that again. He chastises them for failing to look at life from a Christian perspective. He urges them to acknowledge God's sovereignty and providence as they make their plans. He even suggests that they know what they ought to do in, in order in, in this matter. Meaning in verse 17, he tells them, you know what to do, you ought to do it. You, you're, you are to do it. Now, James, I want to I point out, James would hardly address unbelievers this way, right? He wouldn't say to, the, to an unbeliever. When, in chapter 5, we see how James addresses uh, the rich there, and I believe those are the unbelievers. And that's why I think it's important for you to understand and grasp all the people that we're talking, the groups of people that we're talking about here. So in our passage, James returns again to that, those verses in chapter 1 that I had mentioned earlier, the chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, which speak of the rich man as to glory and his humiliation, because like the flower and grass, he will pass away. Now in our current passage, he expands on these warnings, setting them to a real-world example. Do you get the connection? You, you, you get this, this idea of pursuing wealth, pursuing wealth, pursuing business, pursuing wealth, and, and the dangers that are there, and James is expanding on that. 
he encouraged these rich believers to avoid boasting in their worldly, own worldly accomplishments and put their trust in the Lord. He wants them to live in light of Christ and in light of eternity. Now, should I remind you back in chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, that he's taught, he warned them about chasing after their wealth and how it would pass away. He says in verse 12, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So the point is, is that, that James wants, to see, wants them to see the contrast between living a life that's pursuing wealth, pursuing material items, pursuing the world, versus living for eternity. And in light of this, James says, Now listen. Now listen suggesting that he regards the attitude of some of these Christians as being unworthy of being in Christ. He wants them to listen up because they're in grave danger uh, with the way that they're living their lives. And so he exhorts them. And in doing so, I believe he gives some principles that we should consider. In verse 13, then, James, I think, teaches four ways to know that, we, that you are not considering your eternal destination. The first one is, is that you presume power over the timing of your life. You presume timing or power over the timing of your life. The text says, today or tomorrow. Today or tomorrow. Now, I want you to know, just quickly, I think this is a hypothetical statement. But I do think that it reflects the attitude of these people. James indicts them for thinking that they are in control of the timing of their lives. They believe that they can come and go without any thought toward what God may desire for, for them and, their, and, and how they should live. They also, I want you to think about this, they also believe that they can come and go without any thought to who they may hurt in doing so. Remember those poor brethren. Who is depending on them? Who is depending on who, who is the poor brethren depending upon? These people who are willing to just go anytime and be gone. <clears throat> Clearly then there's a lot going on with their brethren who are in a great need of their help. They are leaving them without any regard for their suffering and without any regard for what God would have them do in that situation. Beloved, we can do the same thing. We can come and go in our lives without regard to what God, for what God may desire for us. We can forget our brethren in need. We forget that God desires for us to help others, especially others in the church. And when we're tied up with our own affairs, we tend to miss the needs of others in the church. More than that, we forget the purpose of our lives. We forget our eternal destination. We are living for the here and now. Beloved, when you're living for eternity, you acutely realize that God is in complete control of your life, including the timing of your life. You don't come and go without acknowledging the fact that God is in control of it all. The second way to know that you are not considering your eternal destination is that you presume power over the place of your dwelling. It's a big one, isn't it? Today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city. Again, they presume upon God, believing that they're the ones who decide where they will live. James indicts them on this because they, there are clear needs among the church, the people of the church, yet these folks were intent on traveling to, doing biz, to do business and make money. And as Christians who believe in God's sovereignty, we must understand that God decides everything in our lives. And in Ephesians 1.5, Paul writes, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. And you may be saying to me as I quote that verse, what does salvation have to do with this? Beloved, has everything to do with it. Beloved, Paul teaches that God orders your life in such a way that He brings you to salvation according to the kind intention of His will. And not only does He save you that way, but He orders every event in your life in such a way that there's no other choice. He brings it to pass. He brings it to pass. 
And He puts you where He wants you to serve Him. You might think, I moved to Gainesville for, for my job. You might think, I moved to Gainesville for school. But beloved, God puts you here for His purposes. For His purposes. Now, His purposes might be that you have a job to make money to be able to do uh, ministry. It might be that you uh, go to school so that you can have a better job so that you can do ministry in another place. But I'm telling you, it is here. you are here for His purposes and we can tend to forget that. Angie and I were living in Nevada with, the, with our family and, and by several events we ended up moving to South Carolina with the company that I was working for. So we went from Nevada to South Carolina and then the Lord called me to seminary and so we picked up and we moved all the way back across to Southern California. And then when, when the seminary started winding down and we realized that we had to do something, we, we went back to Florida. Now, if, I don't know if, if you're counting that, but that's four trips. That's four moves all the way across this United States. I can remember telling my wife, I can't believe, this is when we were trying to decide whether to go to seminary or not in California, I said, I can't believe that God would move me all the way to South Carolina just to move me back to California. And she looked at me and said, oh honey, that's the way the Lord works. That's the way He works. And he can do it again and again and again if he wants, right? Beloved, we have no idea what God is doing in our lives. We don't know where he will place us. But if you're open to his sovereign will, he may choose you to, to move you over and over, or he may choose to leave you in one place for many years. We just don't know. Some of James James's readers arrogantly thought they could choose their timing, the timing of their of their goings and comings and the place that they would go to without regard for him. And what made matters worse was that they were they were missing the clear needs of the body in their midst. Beloved, again, if you're living in light of eternity, then you will realize that God puts you where he wants you for his purposes. And you will be open to His leading. And you, will not, you won't be arrogantly moving around thinking that you have the power to make that decision. You know, I, I've, taken, I've always taken this as, I say always, since I've been a Christian. This is, my, this is the way I look at it. God has me here today. And I'm going to stay here today. And I'm going to stay here tomorrow if, unless He shows me otherwise. This is where He has me serving. He has me serving in Gainesville today. Therefore, my assumption is He's going to have me serving in Gainesville tomorrow unless He shows me clearly otherwise. Does that make sense? It simplifies things, right? It makes me realize that I'm not in in charge of this. He is. The third way to know that you're not considering your eternal destination is you presume power over the length of your stay. It says, come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such city and spend a year there. Notice that they said that they'll spend a year. They've even planned out how long they will stay. Now significantly, this is a long stay, right? Uh, Many things can happen in a year. No doubt the length of their tra- the, the length of their travel is partly due to the mode of tra- transportation, meaning that they, they're on foot or, or they're going by water. So it takes a long time, but still a year is a long time to be plant to plan to be away. Again, we must remember that they are arrogantly leaving some people in dire circumstances, some people that they could help. We're talking about people who are living day to day to day, literally uh, not knowing where today's food is going to come from. And these people are arrogantly moving off and doing what they want to do. And they're going to be gone for a year. People living hand to mouth. They're in desperate situations that must be attended to now. And they act as if they have all the time in the world to go and do what they want to do. The, the, these poor brethren uh, that, are, that are struggling, they don't have that luxury. This is the, I want you to understand, this is the height of arrogance. Their brothers have need, and in effect they say, come back next year, we might help. We're going to go and we're going to make enough money, and we're going to be able to give you a large sum of money next, next year to help. They don't need it next year, they need it now. In fact, they're saying, make, 
making money is more important than you are. Again, this is not loving your neighbor as yourself. Proverbs 3, verses 27-28 says this, Do not withhold good from those who, to whom it is due, when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it, when you have it with you. That's, the, that's a principle. It's a principle that we live by. If we have what our neighbor needs, and we're able to give it, we give it. We give it. I think you should hear echoes of this passage in James, right? Especially James 2.15 and 16. Hudson Taylor says this, The use of means ought not to lessen our faith in God, and our faith in God ought not hinder our using whatever means He has given us for the accomplishments of his, accomplishment of His own purposes. End quote. I think the implications are very clear. If your brother has need and you can help, then you are responsible to help. But in order to help, you must be present. You must be around them to know their difficulties. How can you be aware of difficulties facing your brothers and sisters in Christ if you're off doing your own thing? Now let me say something here. I don't, I don't, I'm very certain that James is not prohibiting travel for business. We have some folks in this church who travel for their jobs. That's not his point. That's not his point. His point is, is he's exhorting them to stop making these types of plans when the needs at home far outweigh the need for them to go and engage in business and make a profit. It's not a prohibition against traveling for business. And nor is it a prohibition of planning or even making money. It's a prohibition of doing these things when our priorities should be elsewhere. When our hearts should be elsewhere. When I, my kids were small, as it were, I was, I was moving up in the company that I worked for, uh, and, and I, it caused me to go travel quite a bit. Now, I will say that I wish I had it to do over again now because I wish I would have made my family a higher priority than I did my job. You see the point? God is not saying, don't. Uh, he, uh, James is not saying, and God through James is not saying that we should, shouldn't travel for business and go and do what we need to do to support our families. That's not His point. But the point is, is that you need to keep your priorities in order as, as you do so. Your priorities at home and in your church are, are higher priorities than what you're making, the money you're making on the road, especially if it's in the wrong heart. The issue is our priority. If we only want greater abundance for the sake of our pleasures and for power, then we're doing so at our own peril. Did you get that? If we only want to gather great abundance for the sake of our pleasures or for power, then we are doing so at our own peril. Erasmus says this, Great abundance of riches cannot be gathered and kept by any man without sin. Great eagerness in the pursuit of wealth, pleasure, or honor cannot exist without sin. The fourth way to know that you're, con you're not considering your eternal destination is you presume power over the outcome of your efforts. He says they go there to engage in business and make a profit. Clearly their purpose in going to another, the, their purpose is to go to, the, to the, the other city and stay there to make money, to do business. But they're forgetting that God is the one who generates the wealth. See, they're, they're, placing, they're making their priority going and doing business and making money, and they're not putting God's priorities in order, or in, in the right order, correct? But they are forgetting that God is the one who generates the wealth. God is the one who gives them the ability to make money. In second, First Samuel two seven, the Lord makes poor and rich; He brings low; He also exalts. Moses told the people just before they were to enter the promised land, 
In the wilderness, this is Deuteronomy eight sixteen through 18 In the wilderness he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you, that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise you may say in your heart, My power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who is giving you power to make wealth, that He may confirm His covenant which He swore to your fathers as it is to this day. Beloved, we must always remember that God is the one who gives us wealth. And we must use it for His purposes. Mr. Thornton, the man from our opening story, understood this principle. That God gives us money to further His kingdom. And we must remember that we are living for eternity. And when we do so, we will live with the understanding that God gives us the wealth for His purposes. We don't hoard it. Jesus had this to say about the use of wealth. In Luke 16, 9, I say this to you, make friends for yourselves by the means by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is also faithful in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you, who will entrust, that is, true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the uses of that which is use of that which is another another's who will give you that which is your own? Then he ends it with this very familiar verse Luke sixteen thirteen. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. That's correct, Mammon. You see, these people forgot that God is the one who gives the ability to make money. And for the believer, He gives that ability so that we might do ministry, so that we might go and further His kingdom. The implications are clear, right? You must remember that anything you have is from the hand of God. And we are to use the wealth that He's given us, He has entrusted us with, with for His purposes. This is true of us as individuals and in our churches. Augustine says this, Where your pleasure is, there is your treasure. Where your treasure is, there is your heart. And where your heart is, there is your happiness. Beloved, we've been able to make it through one verse. I want you to consider your eternal destination. Are you living your life with eternity in mind? Or are you living as if this world is all that matters? I believe this is highly instructive. That James is, is addressing those who may not have known that Christ, may not have known Christ as our Lord and Savior. James stated in James 5.19, We've already read it, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he turns a sinner from the error of his ways. He who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sin. Again, I think this is instructive. If you're sitting here today and don't know whether or not you're a believer, maybe you're in that group three. Maybe you have one foot in the church and one foot in the world. Maybe today you've been convicted by your attitude toward your use of money, toward your view of money. You've been living as a friend of this world, living for your pleasures. Perhaps you see the need for repentance. Beloved, if you're in that position... Don't let this day go by. Don't let this day go by without turning from your sin and turning to know the Lord Jesus Christ. I fear that some of you may not know Him. And you need to repent and turn to Him. Maybe you think that just coming to church and associating with Christians is good enough. That's what these people were doing, right? 
They were just coming and they were associating with Christians and they thought it was good enough. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 3.12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Verse 13, But encourage one another day after day as long as it is called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. Beloved, I encourage you to examine your hearts. Turn to Christ, I beg you. If you do know Him, I beg you to consider the things that we spoke about today. I beg you again to consider your hearts. Are you using your wealth your time and your abilities to serve Christ and His church? Ask yourself, what is my attitude toward the resources that God has given me? The church in America doesn't face these grave difficulties at this point. But how we use our resources says much about the condition of our hearts. Are you using your resources for kingdom work? If not, I beg you to ask the Lord to search your hearts. I'm not here to shame you. I don't stand up here and ask for money for our church. I just preach the Scriptures. I, do, I let the Lord do the work. I, I don't have to. But I want you to know this is the message from the King. He cares how you use your resources. He will hold you accountable for your heart toward His work. He will. He will. And He will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning. We praise You that we could come to be to gather together to sing to pray read your word hear your word explained father i pray that there be any here that don't know you that they would their hearts would be softened to you that they would turn to you Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for his work on the cross. We thank you for him going to the cross as a sacrifice. Father, we don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve what you've done for us. Father, you tell us that we are to believe, trust in him. As Paul writes, for by grace we are saved, not by, by grace we are saved through faith, that not of yourselves, but it is a gift of God, so that no man may boast. Father, I pray that we would only boast in what you have done for us. In Christ's name, amen.